The scripture reading for today is from John 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Um, well, if you are with us last week, we jumped back into John 2. We're, we're kind of doing this thing over the next probably couple of years where we're just taking a chapter of the Gospel of John kind of here and there. We, we actually looked at John 1 in May and June. We were a few weeks uh, in John 1 then. We're going to be in John 3 before the end of this year. Uh, but today we kind of close up uh, this study of John 2 that we began last week. And if you remember last week, what John is doing in the beginning of his gospel is he's retelling the story of creation. I mean, he starts the gospel in the beginning. And he's telling the story of this new creation, this fulfilled creation, this creation where Christ is at the very center of it. Another thing we saw last week, if you were here, uh, John, like Moses when he wrote Genesis, is very concerned with what day it is. You remember from the account of creation in Genesis, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day and so forth. John's kind of doing the same thing. He says over and over in chapter one, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And if you were here last week, we did the math, and the final day was the seventh day, and that was the day that Jesus began his ministry. On this seventh day, this day of completion, this day of wholeness, that's when Jesus stepped onto the scene and turned the water into wine and therefore gave his first sign. And right after that, right after that, in, in, in John's account of the life of Jesus, we come to the passage that we read today. Now, this is obviously a fascinating passage, but, but one of the things that's right off the bat that's interesting about it is that in the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it comes at the very end of those accounts. It, it's, it happens on the last week of the life or the ministry of Jesus when he turns the tables over and drives uh, the pigeons and the other animals out of the temple. But here in, in John's account, it would seem that it is coming at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Obviously, the account right after his very first sign. So what's going on here? Well, it could be one of two things. It could be that this happened twice Right, And so it could be that Jesus did this early in his ministry and then he did it again late in his ministry. You know, you think if Jesus, you know, you see the reaction of the Pharisees, they were outraged. In fact, we're gonna see later, this is one of the things that the Pharisees bring up when they're bringing accusations against Jesus. This was seared into their minds. So if it happened two times, it may be more seared into their minds. 
Or John is just putting it here because he's trying to tell us something. Or what I like to think is it's both. I think it may have happened twice. And John gives us this account right at the beginning of his ministry because right off the bat, he is trying to tell us as much as he can about who Jesus is. And this passage tells us a lot about Jesus, but also tells us a lot about the temple. And so we're gonna look at actually five things today. I know you're thinking, golly, five things. This is gonna last a long time. Um, But we'll go through them quick. First of all, what is the temple? This passage answers that question. What have we done to the temple? Who is the true temple? What Jesus does to the temple, or what does Jesus do to the temple? And then the fifth question, who is the temple now? So what is the temple? Next April, I'm leading a trip. And if you have never done a trip like this, I really would encourage you go to go. We're gonna go to Jordan and to Egypt and to Israel. And if you've ever traveled in the ancient world, the ancient world is marked everywhere you go, not just in Israel, but everywhere you go, it is marked by temples. These were sacred spaces in the ancient world, very important for ancient worship. In the ancient world, the temple was where you met with the Lord. The, the temple was where you had some sort of moment of transcendence. And again, this was not just true of Hebrew religion, but of all religions. The the temple was the place where God and man came together. But in Israel, of course, this was this was huge. This was very central in their life. In fact, even just the dominance of the Temple Mount. If you ever go to Israel into Jerusalem, I mean, the Temple platform there, the Temple Mount platform is a man-made 37-acre platform that dominates the whole city of Jerusalem. And it was this sacred and holy and powerful place where if you were in the temple, you were both on earth and in heaven. If you were in the temple, you were both in the presence of God and in the presence of man. It was a sacred and powerful place. And in the middle of the temple was the ark, the ark of the covenant, where the spirit of God, the very spirit of God dwelled among the people. And it was a sign to them that God was for them, that God loved them, that he was there to care for them. Now, it's interesting that this particular passage about the temple happens at the Passover feast. And so you can see all these things kind of building and coming together. The Passover, if you remember from Exodus 12, the Passover was a a commemoration that the Jewish people celebrated every year. And what they were celebrating was the night that God freed them. And and here's really how he did it. He had raised up a deliverer of Moses. And through Moses, God brought these 10 plagues among the people of Egypt. And they were devastating. But the last plague was the most devastating. And on that night, the night of the last plague, the spirit of God visited the Egyptians and the spirit of God put to death the firstborn child of every household. I mean, you can imagine, just imagine if that were to happen over one night. We had some flooding and some power outages last night, but imagine if something so tragic where literally every family experienced a death, but the households of the people of Israel were safe. They were protected. The the sacrificial lamb was a sign to them that God was with them, that he was keeping them safe and and no one was harmed in Israel. So this is what they're commemorating. This this sign, this, this power that God is with us, he's in the temple with us and that he is caring for us. He's near to us, that he loves us. And and all of this imagery is wrapped up in what the temple is, this place where heaven and earth come together, where God meets man. 
But secondly, I want to look at this. What have we done to the temple? What have we done with this temple? Now, it's interesting what's going on here. So when people would come to the temple, they were really doing two things. They were bringing a sacrifice, sacrifices for their sin and the sins of their family. And they were also coming to pay their temple tax, a tax that would go to to care for the temple, to take care of those who were caring for the temple. Now, if you wanted to bring a sacrifice to sacrifice to the temple, it had to be perfect. It had to be unblemished. It, It couldn't be Uh, an animal sacrifice that was harmed in any way. And so you can imagine, so for example, Jesus, he was coming to Jerusalem from Galilee. It was 90 miles away. They're traveling on foot. And so to, to get an animal, to get a pigeon or to get a lamb all the way down to Jerusalem without it being harmed, without it running away, without something happening to it on the way was incredibly difficult. And so what happened is most people would just buy the sacrificial animal right there at the temple, as if those were kind of approved anyway. Also, what was going on is people were paying their temple tax, but you had to pay the tax in Tyrian coinage, which is a particular type of coin. It was silver. It was very valuable. They weren't just distributed out through the currency. They were kind of hard to find. And so you see what's happening here. (laughs) These people at the temple are saying, okay, everybody's coming here. They're wanting to buy the sacrificial animals. They're going to need the coin. And so they start marking the prices up. And this whole business was formed where people were taking massive advantage. The people that were entrusted to care for the temple were taking advantage of the people that were coming genuinely to pay their temple tax and to make sacrifices. And so these animals were being sold for three, four times what they were really worth. The the same thing with the coinage. There was a massive exchange rate or upcharge in order to get the right coin. And Jesus sees this and he's furious. Now, You hear about this. You hear about people using the work of God to take advantage of other people. And this doesn't seem so ancient, does it? It doesn't seem like it's so obscure. In fact, it feels like we kind of see a lot of this today where people can kind of use Christianity uh, to really put people in a frenzy, to, to make people do things that are unwise. You know, Christianity in America can be incredibly profitable. Now, it's not that ministers of the gospel should never be paid. In fact, we see that as a biblical principle in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5 says, let the elders who rue well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So I think Paul's giving a principle here, certainly, and that's even what the whole temple tax was about. It's not wrong for Christians or for people serving the kingdom of the Lord to be paid. Even kind of in a marketplace thing, you know, Lou Priolo is a, has written many books. Matt Papa and Jordan Coughlin write songs that are sold and traded. So I don't think that there's, a, there's an absolution against receiving money for Christian kind of work. But, but what I do think is going on here that so infuriated the Lord is just the greed that had taken over people's hearts. They saw this opportunity and and rather than being fairly compensated to serve the Lord, they ended up letting the Lord serve their greed. The Lord serve their desires. The Lord serve their kingdom. And you know, sadly, this is not unique in the history of the church. 
This happens a lot of times to churches. It's easy, I want you to hear this, and this is not just for Christian ministries, this is true for all of us, but it's easy to become greedy. And I think for Christians, it's particularly easy for us to become greedy because we can justify our greed by doing such good stuff. You know, God kind of owes me this. I kind of deserve this. I work so hard for him. And and we can end up manipulating things in our favor that were really never intended to be ours. You know, and and greed can lead us uh, to end up serving things that aren't the Lord. The church I pastored in Birmingham, a wonderful church with wonderful people. And and they kind of had a story about 10 or 15 years before I came there that, that happens to a lot of churches. They were a growing church, they were reaching people, and they wanted to kind of build the really big church, you know? And they kind of said, if you build it, they will come, right? And a lot of churches kind of say this. And so they built the big church, they got in so much debt, but they were expecting that if we get in all this debt, you know, people will come and and help us pay for it, but that didn't happen. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong for churches to take on debt, but what happened in this particular instance is rather than the debt serving the church keep growing, really the church kind of got in a situation where it had to serve the debt. So they needed people to come, not because they really wanted to minister to them. I mean, they did. It was just, it was weird. This is weird. This is where it gets kind of weird, but they, they really needed them to come because they had this note. The bank wanted them to pay. And they didn't just need people to come. They needed wealthy people to come because those are the people that could really help them. And don't you see how how money can get involved and become so deceiving for us. Again, this is not, sadly, this is not unique in the story of the church. In fact, kind of the greatest church split ever, it really boiled down. There was a lot of issues, but it was really boiled down to an issue of money. Uh, the, the, The reformation of the church was kind of kicked off because a guy, Leo X, wanted to build a really big building, St. Peter's Basilica. If you've ever been there, it's amazing. But he needed more money. He needed more money. He needed more money. He wanted to build it faster. He wanted to build it faster. And so he sent these guys out to sell indulgences. And what an indulgence was, basically, was you can live however you want to live, but if you have an indulgence, you don't have to go to hell and you don't have to, you know, spend time in purgatory someday. So he had a good product. And people went out and sold these indulgences and they got rich selling the indulgences and there was money flowing around. And finally, Martin Luther said, this is not of the Lord. And if you've ever read the 95 Theses, really the, the main bulk of it, I always thought it was uh, some you know, outline of Protestant theology. No, the 95 Theses is mostly about indulgences and how wicked this practice had become. But when he started saying that, when Martin Luther started calling the church out on that, you know what the church did to Martin Luther and everybody like him? They kicked him out. Greed can blind you. And that's true for the Christian and the Christian, you know, layman, and that's true for the Christian minister. I think the real principle on this that I, that I want you to see is this. It's easy, it's easy to take what God has entrusted to you and use it for your own gain and not God's glory. It's easy to take what God has entrusted to you and to use it for your own gain and not God's glory. I want you to hear this, church. Do you know what the whole purpose of your life is? 
Do you know what the purpose of your life is? Do you know why you were created? Now, the temple, I think I have a little blueprint here. The temple was designed like this. And the temple consisted of the courts. Outside of the temple, you had the courts and there was the, you know, the outer courts, the courts of different groups of people, the court of priests, the different tribes, different, had different kind of places around the court. But inside the court, inside the courts of the temple, was the holy place. And the holy place was, was where a lot of the temple work really happened. It was this sacred place, but there was even a more sacred place than the holy place. It was the holy of holies, the inner sanctum, the sanctum sanctorum of the temple, the most holy place. And in the holy place, in the most holy place, the, the covenant was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The, the, the very presence of God was seated or was was placed, was was dwelling in the most holy place in the heart of the temple. I want you to hear this. In the beginning of time, God, we read in scripture, separated the dry land from the waters. And inside the dry land, there was a garden. Or rather, sorry, inside the dry land, there was Eden. And inside of Eden, there was a garden. And in the garden, hear this, what did God do? He placed a man and a woman. He placed his image there. Why? So that his glory would be known in all of the earth. God created you. God designed you for the same purpose that he placed his spirit in the middle of the temple, in the middle of Jerusalem, to be a display of his glory. And how was the man and the woman to display, to image the glory of God? You know how? It wasn't that they were just worshiping God all the time. They were. It's that they were taking what God had given them. They were taking what God had entrusted to them and they were using it in a way that honored him, that glorified him. They were following his order. And so at, at the very center of this was the marriage. It was the relationship between the man and the woman. This was a gift of God. This wasn't something to take them away from God. Actually, in the way that they were married to one another, in the way that they served and loved one another, they were bringing glory to God. In the relationships that they were to have with other people, they were to bring glory to God. In the work that God called them to, as they took the raw materials that God had entrusted to them, and as they used those raw materials in such a good way, in an orderly way, according to God's plan, what was to happen? God was going to be glorified in all of that. How was Adam going to glorify God? You know how? He was going to be a great gardener. He was going to use the things that God had entrusted him, and he was going to, to, to carry out his stewardship in such a way that would ultimately honor and glorify the God. And I want you to hear this. The same is true of you, but it is very easy to take the relationships that God wants to give you. For example, take gifts like sex and marriage and to get those all out of order and to bring great dishonor on the image of God in you rather than honor on the image of God in you and glory to the Lord. It is very easy to take things like your work that God has entrusted to you, that God has given you. He says, I'm giving you these talents and these raw materials and these skills, and I want you to put them to use for the sake of my kingdom. And it's very easy to take those and to twist them and to begin working for your own benefit and for the sake of your own kingdom and for the sake of your own glory. It is very easy to take what God has entrusted to you and to use it for your own gain and not God's glory. 
This is what Adam did. And this is what all of us have done. So we've looked at what is the temple. We've looked at what we have done to the temple. But third, who is the true temple? When Jesus said, tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. I mean, that statement, again, I mentioned earlier, this comes up when he is being accused later in life. This set the Pharisees off. If you heard Blake earlier, if you could hear him, it was kind of noisy and he didn't have a microphone, but he announced the Rhythms Guide. And in the Rhythms Guide, we have a daily Bible reading that goes along with every one of our sermons. And actually we have a podcast that goes along with that daily Bible reading. And so we really want you in the word. And so this week we've been reading the gospel of John and all throughout the gospel of John, all throughout the gospel of John, I would say Jesus is always saying like the worst possible thing he could say, you know, he's in a conversation with the Pharisees and you're just thinking, okay, Jesus, please don't tell them that their father is the devil. Don't tell, okay, he just did. And then, you know, and then, you know, it's a, please don't tell him that you're greater than Abraham. Oh, okay, he did that too. And, and here he is here saying, look, I'm gonna destroy the temple. <laughs> Your prized possession, this thing that you're so proud of, this wonder of the ancient world. I mean, even to this day, why is the city of Jerusalem so fought over, so sought after? It's because the temple was there and Jesus says, I'm greater than this temple. What he was saying to them, I want you to hear this. He was saying, I am the true temple. I am the fulfillment of the temple. And don't you hear this? This is, this, is, this is how you need to read your Bibles, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Someone asked me in the first service, I haven't had an answer. We do a text to pastor and he said, why does Jesus teach in metaphor so often? What, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show these people who he really is. God put Adam in the garden and he said, take this garden, take the materials I've given you and, and follow my order and work it. And he failed, he couldn't do it. He was tested in the garden and he didn't follow God's will. He wanted his own will, but God put Jesus in the garden and he always did what the father asked him to. In fact, when he was in the garden at the end of his life, what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He is the true Adam. He's the true Abraham. God called Abraham to leave his homeland and to go to a place that God would show him. And if he did and he was obedient, God would give him many offspring. But Jesus is a true, the true Abraham who left his ultimate homeland, the, the throne of God. And he came to earth obediently and through his death and resurrection, he has countless offspring from every tribe and language and people all over the world. Jesus is the true Isaac, the true son who faithfully followed his father up the mountain to be the sacrifice. He's the true David, the great king that didn't just take on a giant, but literally takes on all of our sin and Satan and all of the disorder of the whole world. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And I could go on. He's the true Solomon. He's full of wisdom. He's the true Isaiah. He's full of the word of God. He's the true light. He's the true lamb. And he is the true temple. Jesus is the one where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is the place where you can be fully in the presence of God and fully in the presence of man. Jesus is the fullness of all of this. He is saying, tear this temple down and I will build it in three days. Why? Because he is the temple. He is the true temple, the true fulfillment of all of these things. So we've looked at, we've looked at what is the temple, what we've done to the temple, 
who the true temple is, but, but fourthly and importantly, what does Jesus do to the temple? Well, we can read this story pretty critically. It's easy to look at the money changers, you know, and say, oh, how dare they? How dare they do that? But of course, we do the same thing. We're the same people that take what God has entrusted to us and use it for our own gain. We take the skills, we take the money, we take the relationships. And you know, even, even we do those things sometimes even when it comes off looking pretty good. There's definitely a lot of sin in my life. There's some things in my life where you're like, oh, that's just blatant sin. That's really bad, Jason. There's a lot of things in my life where you're like, oh, Jason looks pretty good. But if you knew my motives and you knew my attitude, you'd be like, yeah. I heard Ray Ortland say this one time. I thought it was so good. He said, if sin was the color blue, then even in my most saintly prayer, there would be a little blue in me. You know, even in the best things I do, so often my heart is not directed toward the things of God, but toward myself. Even my best things are stained. And this is the state of every temple. It's the state of your life. It's the state of my life. So what does Jesus do? He does two things. I want you to hear this. Jesus destroys the temple and he raises the temple. One of the things that Christians believe, and hear this, this is so freeing. One of the things that Christians believe is that we can have a righteous record, not through the righteousness of our own, but through the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We, with our own attempts at righteousness, are like Adam, right? We will use what God has entrusted us and we'll seek our own glory. We are like the temple. We've been blessed by God. We've been called good by God, but we're not totally pure. We've forsaken God. We've tarnished God's glory in us. But Jesus is not like that. He, as I said, is the true Adam, the one who always trusted the order of God. He is the true temple, the one who is always pure. And the Christian gospel is this, that if you turn from your sin, if you repent of your sin, if you forsake sake, your own efforts of justice. I'm not just talking about your bad sins. I'm talking about your good sins. I'm talking about the times when there's blue in your heart, but everybody else thinks you're doing great. The things in your life that you've set up as little idols that, that maybe the world would celebrate. If you turn from your sin, if you, if you turn from your attempt at self-justification and trust in the pure justification and the true righteousness that only Jesus can give, then that righteousness will be counted to you. You can be made righteous. But in doing this, what, what Jesus is doing is he's tearing down our temple. We're forsaking our life. Colossians 3, Paul explains it this way in verse three, for you have died and your life, your life, your life has died with Christ on the cross, but you are now hidden in God with Christ. Jesus destroys our temple, but he also raises a new one. And this is the great message of Christianity. If you are a Christian, you have been given through faith in Christ, a record of righteousness before God. But Jesus does more than that. He does more than just destroy your old temple and give you credit for his. He actually wants to raise a new temple in you. And this looks a lot like cleansing. I just want to hear this. If you know the real Jesus, if you are trusting in the real Jesus, following the real Jesus, you can't know the real Jesus without him disrupting you. 
You can't know the real Jesus without him disrupting you. Because in all of our hearts, there's money changers. In all of our hearts, there's trade for animals that shouldn't be going on. In all of our hearts, we've taken what God has entrusted us and used it for our own gain. And so when Jesus shows up, you know what he does? He disrupts you. And so I would ask you, what is it that Jesus needs to turn over in your heart today? What is it that Jesus needs to call out in your life today? And I just want you to hear this. If right now you're sitting there and you're feeling conviction, you know what that is? That's praise God. You know what that is? That's Jesus at work in your life. He's saying, get rid of this. Get rid of this. Turn away from this. Get, get, get this out of your heart. Get this out of your life. He, he cleanses us. He gets rid of those things in our lives. Now, so look, some of y'all get this. Some of y'all are like, yes, Jason. Yes, I want that. I want to purely follow God. I want to purely love the Lord. I want to, I want to take, I want, that's what I want my whole life to be. I want, I want to take what God has given me and I want to use it for his glory. But here's the truth, Jason. I can't, I don't. It's like Ortland said, I know there's a little blue in my heart. You know, there, there was another guy like that. There was this guy named uh, Philip Melanchthon and he was best friends with Martin Luther and he always lived like that. He realized, look, even in the best things I do, he would have this conversation with Martin Luther. He said, look, Martin, in the best things I do, in the very best things I do, I know that it's clouded with a little self-interest. I know that there's in there. And, and so he, he got frozen by that. He wouldn't do anything. He said, you know, even when I preach, I don't know that it's pure. I, even when I pray for people, I'm kind of self-seeking. And so he got frozen in this. And Martin Luther said the best thing to him. He said, Philip, do you preach real sin or imaginary sin? And Melanchthon was like, real sin? And then Martin Luther was like, yeah, you really are a sinner. And, and, and that therefore you're really gonna deal with sin. You're gonna deal with sin and you're gonna be dealing with sin until you see Jesus. But then he said, look, so love God and sin boldly. Basically, don't be so frozen by the purity of your heart, because it's going to be impure. Follow him, do what he's called you, love God and sin boldly. But then he said this, but trust in the grace and mercy of God more boldly still. Here's the deal, I want you to hear this. I'm, I'm preaching to you right now, okay? And I want my motivation for this to be because I love you and I wanna serve you and because I love God, but I have to be very honest. There's a little bit inside of me that says like, I hope they like it. I hope they think I'm smart. I hope they think I'm cool. We have that in us, but you know what? You know, it's good news for me. You know what the good news for me is? No one is justified by preaching and no one is justified by leading a small group and nobody is justified by church attendance and nobody is justified by making a bunch of money and giving it away because in all of those self attempts at justification, we are stained, but there is a justification that you and that I can have that is pure, that is whole, and it is the righteousness of Christ offered to all who believe in him. And so I want you to hear this. I have to trust Jesus when I'm sinning and I have to trust Jesus even when it seems like I'm doing really good things. In all of this, I have to trust Jesus. In all of this, I have to do. And here's what to do. If, if that's how you'll live, if in the best things you do, you trust Jesus, if in the worst things you do, you trust Jesus, and in the best things you do, you trust Jesus, here's what it'll do. It'll cause you to love Jesus. You'll see how much you need him 
There's a verse in this that I think is so powerful. Here's the key. It says, the disciples looked at Jesus and they considered all this and it said, zeal for his father's house consumed him. We were talking in our teaching meeting this week and somebody brought up this phrase and I thought it was so good. They said, I think it was Jeremy. They said, what you see here is the self-forgetfulness of Jesus. The self-forgetfulness of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? I mean, Jesus, self-forgetfulness of Jesus, here's what it means. Jesus was in the very nature of God. Jesus has the essence of God. Jesus is equal with God the Father, yet he humbled himself. He made himself a servant. He obeyed the Father's will. Why? Because he's zealous about the Father and the things of the Father. Jesus came so zealous to love his father and to love the church that his father loved that he totally forgot about himself. So even in his moment of greatest turmoil, his moment of greatest pain, he says, not my will, but thine be done. He he totally forgot about himself, the self-forgetfulness of Jesus fueled by his zealous love for the father and his zealous love for the things of the father. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. We said, what does this look like in our lives? And, you know, the thing we came up with in the teaching meeting was, you know, what if there's a bunch of fathers in there? He said, what if, what if we were showering? We're in the shower. And somehow as we're showering, we realize that one of our children is being kidnapped. And this guy has a weapon. You know what I would do? You know what if I'm in the shower and somebody kids up with one of my child? I, I wouldn't care if I was naked. I wouldn't care if I was unarmed. I would bolt as hard and as fast as I could to go after that person Why? Because zeal for my child would create in me a self-forgetfulness. And I want you to hear this. This, That's the pathway to purity, to righteousness. That's, That's how Jesus rebuilds the temple as you love him, as you pursue him. This is why it's so important to worship. It's so important to be reading your Bible. It's why we want you serving in Grove Park. Yes, because we have compassion and mercy on the people of Grove Park, but even more than that, because we want you to, in that service, see Jesus and fall in love with him and fall in love with his kingdom. And here's the deal. If you worship and if you serve and if you read your Bible for other reasons, you'll be lousy at all of it. But if you serve, if you pursue the Lord, if you worship because zeal for Christ, zeal for God consumes you, well, then you're worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Then you're serving the Lord as a Christian. So we've looked at what is the temple. We've looked at what we've done to the temple. We've looked at who is the true temple and what Jesus does to the temple. But finally, and very important, who is the temple now? Well, don't you see? (laughs) This is obvious. Who is the temple now? You know how the New Testament refers to you? You know, if you're in Christ, you know what the New Testament says about you? Each one of you, hear this. The New Testament says that you are the temple. This is why you need to study the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament, and see with what awe and fear and reverence they treat the temple. If you see how 
big of a deal the old temple was. It was the presence of God. It was where God would be known. You needed this temple. It was such a big deal. But you know what the New Testament says? It explodes on the scene. It says, in Christ, you have been made so righteous and so pure that you can be filled by the very spirit of God. And now the temple has been torn down at Jesus's death, but it's been raised with his resurrection. And now he is building a new temple. And you, with Christ himself being the cornerstone are that temple. You're the temple. You are the spirit-filled temple of God. That's an amazing thing to think about. The guy at your work that sits next to you in the cubicle, he thinks you're just a guy that uses an HP computer. Little does he know that the spirit-filled temple of God is sitting next to him at work. What does that mean? Your neighbor that walk, sees you walking around the neighborhood taking your walk, they think, oh, there's so-and-so doing their walk. Little do they know that the spirit-filled temple of God just walked by their house. Your kids, when you tuck them into bed at night, they just think mom and dad are tucking me in. Little do they know that the spirit-filled temple of God, the place where heaven and earth meets, is tucking them into bed. Don't you see what all this means? In in ancient times, if you wanted to get close to God, if you wanted to see God, if you wanted God to be represented, you had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go to the temple. But now in God's providence, he has sent Jerusalem to the entire world. He has sent Jerusalem to the bedside and to the street in your neighborhood and to the cubicle in your workplace. God has sent his representatives, his ambassador, his kingdom presence to all of those places. You are the simple. I, uh, I have a friend that I've been trying to talk to about the Lord since we were in high school. I mean, long, long time. And this is a person that doesn't believe in God or the things of God, but, but recently their heart has grown a little soft and um, they're starting to believe. I've gotten to the point where they say, I do believe in God and there might be something to this Jesus guy. And um, they don't live in Atlanta. And I said, well, let me, would you be interested? Could you, would you go to a church? Would you? And they, they finally agreed to go to a church. I'm, I'm blown away by what the Lord's doing in your life. And so I'm doing all this research on these churches. I'm like church stalking on the, I see what you guys go through, you know? It's hard out there. But anyway, so I'm watching these things, trying to watch the video, trying to get the essence, because it's such a big, I mean, I've been looking at this like 20 years. I don't want to, you know, send them to the wrong church, right? And I, I got online and they had this like little video and the pastor of the church says, we wanna be the kind of church that even if you don't believe in God, when you hear the name Jesus, you'll smile because we've represented him so well. And man, I wanna be the kind of church like that. You are the temple. You, you, have, so much, you have so much potential you have so much potential impact. God has entrusted so much to us. He's given us so many gifts. He's, he's, he's entrusted so much to us. And here's the deal. Here's the deal, guys. We can either use that to serve ourselves. We can either follow the way of Adam. We can follow the way of these Pharisees and priests. We can use that to serve ourselves, or we can take what God has entrusted to us and represent him faithfully. And so look, here's the deal. What does God, what does Jesus need to destroy? What does he need to clean out of your life today? And what does he need to raise up in your life? 
And as you look to him, as you worship him, he is faithful to do this work. So let's pray that he would. So Father, I pray right now, as this church, as we, as me, as a pastor here, looks to Jesus, that you would conform us into his image. You would remove the, the profound tendency in our heart to be greedy and self-serving and self-centered and self-glorifying. We would be the kind of people that take what you have entrusted into us and use it so that your glory can be known, so that we would be the kind of people that represent you, that represent Jesus well in whatever we do and in, in, in our words and in our, even in our thoughts and our attitudes, that you would give us the self-forgetfulness that comes through a zeal for you and a zeal that comes by, by knowing the power of the gospel, by knowing how zealous you are for us, how much you love us, that you sent Jesus for us. So, Father, as we meditate on these things, as we, as we look more deeply at the gospel of Jesus, our Lord, may you change us. May you renew us. May you conform us to the very image of, of him. And I pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we close today, I'm gonna to be standing over here in the corner. I'll be here through the rest of the time, even as you leave. I'd love the opportunity to, to talk to you, to pray with you answer a question you may have. You can feel free to slip over there during the song we're about to sing or after the service, of course. Also, if you um, have a question, if you ever have a question for me or a prayer need, we have, a, we have this called it's the text to pastor line. The number's on your bulletin. Feel free to use that. We love getting questions from you. We love to engage with you in that way. But I do invite you all to stand now and to respond as Jordan leads.